0: primary care knowledge boost summer rewind vertigo
1: hello and welcome to primary care knowledge boost um, happy summer <laughs> we're here um, just to reintroduce one of the episodes that we've done over the past year to give ourselves a little bit of editing time a little bit of a break um, so we thought we'd re-release vertigo um, yes, it was a fantastic chat that we had
0: with um, Ms Emma Stapleton, who's an ENT consultant in Manchester, and David Jay, um, who is a clinical scientist. Um, it was a fantastic chat. Um, it's had quite a lot of good feedback, lots of listens, um, and I know for Sarah, at least, it's been fantastic for her um, day-to-day work life as well.
1: Yeah, I I, um, I find the approach and the way to sort of sort out your differentials and the sorting hat Uh, really useful and I am much better at a head impulse test now than I used to be (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah fabulous exactly so we hope you all enjoy and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode so um would you mind introducing yourselves and explaining a bit about
2: your current roles please Hi, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Emma Stapleton, I'm an ENT consultant at the Manchester Royal Infirmary and I specialise in all things to do with adult ears, so auditory implants, adult hearing disorders and balance disorders and I work very closely with my colleagues in audiology.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Dave Jay, I'm uh, in audiology uh, as a clinical scientist and I uh, work almost exclusively in vestibular diagnostics and rehab, and cochlear implants, uh, mostly with adults.
1: Wow, brilliant. And we're very, very excited to have you both here. So thank you both so much for joining us, because this has been a really very much requested episode to talk about vertigo. So if we start with the primary care perspective, we're getting somebody in and they're telling us that they're a bit dizzy or woozy or feel a bit funny. Um, Where would you go? How would you start differentiating between the causes?
3: The, the approach that I've always used, um, even before I kind of came across it, is the um, timing and triggers approach. And uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of neurologists and audio and ENT doctors and physiotherapists in Johns Hopkins who've published about this a lot. And the way, the way that I tend to think about it is, you know, you have essentially four types of dizziness. Um, you can split most dizziness in half by saying, is it a one-off? As, is this the first time it's ever happened? Or is it multiple episodes? Um, So, if you then split them into two and you've got is it a one off or an episode? And within each of those two groups, you've got has it been triggered or is it completely random and spontaneous? So, that gives you four groups. So, you've got your one off that is completely out of the blue, and you've got your one off that has come along after something obvious. And then you've also got your episodes that appear completely out of the blue, and you've got your episodes. That are triggered by something. So if you have dizziness that comes along after something obvious, that might be a head trauma, that might be drug use, they'll use that will usually be obvious in the history, and that will lead you down a kind of a post-exposure route there. If you've got dizziness that's come out of nowhere and they've never had it before, to me, you're thinking about either some kind of inflammatory in ear event like a vestibular neuritis or a labyrinthitis, or the differential that there, there would be a posterior circulation stroke. Um, And then on the other side, if you've got multiple episodes, if they are triggered reliably by something, it's usually by the person's movement. And, you know, then you start thinking about BPPV with particular triggers, which we can talk about later, Uh, or possibly things like postural hypertension, if they're standing up quickly. And then episodes that come along with no trigger at all you generally split those into many disease and vestibular migraine. So that, you know, that gives you options within each of those four categories. And there are obviously things that lie outside of those, but that, those are the kind of general. That's my, that would be my general, you know, in thinking about timing and triggers. So, you know, what triggers it off and how long does it last for? Do you want to say anything about that?
2: Yeah, so my personal approach is slightly different to David's. He's briefly mentioned the things that are outside of that spectrum, and I think it's really important to try to pin those down or exclude them early on. So if we think about human balance, it's not just all about the inner ears, but in our ENT and audiology balance clinic, we see loads of cases that have got nothing to do with people's ears. They're to do with their circulation. You know, they're to do with um, psychological factors. They're to do with all sorts of other things, vision, uh, proprioceptive problems. So I think if we try and remember that human balance comes not only from the inner ears, but also from the proprioception in the limbs from the visual input, and having good central connections, which requires a healthy brain and good circulation. Patients often come in and use the word vertigo um, incorrectly, and I'm sure you guys get this as well. Patients go on Google and they come in and say, I've got vertigo, doctor. But when you when you ask a few questions, they haven't got vertigo at all. So I personally like to sort of get down into exactly what they're experiencing um, before trying to pin down the cause of, of whatever it is that's going on. Mm-hmm. And that can be the hardest part. And one of the things that we talk about in, in balance um, is that it really is all about the history. We do do investigations and we do examine our patients, but actually the vast majority of balance um, conditions can be pinned down with a really great clinical history. Yeah.
0: That was a really nice overview and I've not actually come across um, that way of dividing it into timing and triggers before um, and it makes a lot of sense in my head. I'm like, why has nobody told me that before? Um, but the um, we wanted to drill down um, a bit more into specifically about vertigo. So we wondered if you could give a definition of what that actually is um, for, for the listeners.
2: So, so, so vertigo is, is an illusion of movement. Now, inner ear, acute balance disorders often do involve vertigo, and that's why it's really important to find out whether a patient is experiencing vertigo, so an illusion of movement, an illusion of spinning, a feeling that the room is moving, or whether they're experiencing something else. Would you agree?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'd probably add to that in that, you know, what we call true, we call it true rotatory vertigo, because obviously the word vertigo is often badly used. And Alfred Hitchcock's partly responsible for that, although that would be acrophobia, the fear of heights. Right. But vertigo, the rotatory spinning sensation is almost almost always not entirely, but almost always from uh, either the inner ears or or an imbalance in the central vestibular system. And the reason for that is you have vestibular ocular reflexes, which come from your uh, inner ears and move your eyes. And when the two vestibular systems on either side of the body are not symmetrical, then you'll get a a vestibular ocular reflex generated from one side that is not matched on the other side. So for example, if you have a neuritis and one nerve is hyperactive and inflamed, you'll get this constant signal to move the eyes one way and they will drift away from that side and they'll flick back to the other side. And that's what generates an astagmus. And that's what generates your sensation of movement. So generally vertigo is from either the peripheral or central vestibular system and not matching up with each other on either side.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, and that kind of led into the next question that I had about the different causes of vertigo and how you start to filter them and what might actually be going on. So you've mentioned about peripheral and central there. Can you go into a little bit more detail?
3: Yeah, so I, you come across this a lot in you know acute and emergency work and everybody is always worried about posterior, posterior circulation strokes uh, of course and partially because they they can often present without focal neurology and they you know they can be very damaging and it's very very important obviously to bear that in mind you also have to bear in mind the the, the likelihood of it because it is much more common to have a peripheral inner ear uh, problem um, and you often see people to, coming to the emergency department and then they're on a stroke pathway because they are older and they have cardiovascular risk factors and they're admitted and they're imaged multiple times and, you know, and they spend a lot of time in hospital and that obviously that has its problems as well. So, you know, distinguishing between peripheral and central is kind of like the Holy grail of acute dizziness. Uh, And there are, again, the same team from Johns Hopkins have published a lot on this HINTS uh, uh, paradigm, which we can talk about later. But that really it can be very useful for the, an acute dizzy patient. But, you know, there's a lot of detail to that. It's not a quick, quick, easy one to learn. And you have to be very good at head impulse testing. Head impulse testing is really useful because when somebody is acutely dizzy, their vestibular ocular reflex is not going to work on the side that's affected. And therefore, they will have a what we call a positive head impulse test. And in central cases, the majority of those posterior circulation strokes are in the cerebellum, which is outside of the VOR pathway. So therefore, their VOR is still intact and they'll have a normal head impulse test, despite the fact that they've got rollicking nystagmus and they feel awful and and they are vomiting. Um, So the head impulse test is probably the best and quickest and most useful way to tell the difference for really acutely dizzy people but it has its caveats it's quite quite a lot to go into right now but that's that would be my general overview of it what do you think
2: yeah i mean patients who i've diagnosed with a central disorder have often come into the clinic room and you can tell that something's not right with them they might have a really weird gait they might be demonstrating other neurological signs have cranial nerve palsies there's just something not quite right with them Mm -hmm. um i mean i'd I'm talking about spidey senses here rather than Dave's um, you know, evidence-based uh, examination protocol. But patients with, um, for example, um, a brain tumour or something or fi- funny going on, they're often just not quite right in other ways. And I include, include patients with MS because although a lot of patients with dizziness worry about MS, it's really rare for us to diagnose it. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't tend to present with dizziness. But those that do will tell you about other symptoms. They'll talk about um, limb numbness or, or other symptoms that they've had often when we're just doing a basic examination we just see nystagmus that isn't right and doesn't fit in with any particular vestibular pattern
1: it's perfect complementary opinions really because there's one about spider senses and that is important and and then the other that's kind of the more evidence-based side of it Um, and also the cranial nerve side as well so it's really interesting our next question was around red flags for vertigo not to be missed it'd be quite nice to just do a bit of a summary of that even though we've been through some of it
3: well, for me, I mean, the sort of truncolate ataxia and just the inability to, inability to stand up is a really big one. The literature talks about a sudden loss of hearing, and that that's flagging for a sort of brainstem or, or labyrinthine stroke. But actually, those are very rare, and we do see sudden losses of hearing anyway, just in the peripheral audio vestibular system. And then if I remember, I can't, I'll never remember this, but there was something like the five deadly Ds of dizziness. And it's like uh, diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, dysesthesia, and there's one more and I'm, I can't remember it. But if you if you Google deadly deeds of dizziness, I think those are quite handy for red flags.
1: No, that's really useful. We'll, we'll link to them. Now, thinking about the classical presentations of peripheral vertigo, it'd be nice for you to talk us through some classical presentations here, if you will. So we're thinking about benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, BPPV, uh, vestibular neuritis and Meriner's disease.
2: Yeah, yeah. So there are three really big, really common ones that are very, very easy to distinguish from one another by asking your patient just one question. So once we've um, figured out that our patient has experienced true rotational vertigo, we ask them, how long does each episode last? Yeah. and so that divides those three conditions up really really um, nicely and in fact I spoke to the Manchester Neurology Society about this yesterday and um, they were all very puzzled about balance but when I split it up like this it suddenly I think made a bit of sense to them um, so if the patient says well I have really bad dizziness that lasts for just a few seconds when I turn over on my side in bed that's absolutely classic for BPPV and mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how many patients make it as far as our clinic and no one's really recognized it yet yeah. but it is an absolute treat because it's a is a really lovely condition to test for with your Dix-Hall Pike test and to treat with an Epley manoeuvre and what we know is that if um, a qualified professional carries out an Epley manoeuvre there's about a 95% chance that the patient will achieve um, resolution of the symptoms for six months or more there are home exercise equivalents um, which are only I think on the last review I read about 50% chance to be effective Mm, that's a big difference yeah yeah, it's a big difference, um, and it's a good reason for them to come come to our clinic if they're having ongoing symptoms.
3: Yeah, it's such a treatable condition, and it massively increases falls risk in the in the elderly. So, if it, the sooner it can be got rid of, the better. And again, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm like you know tons full of mnemonics and things like that, <laughs> but um, there are always for me there are six there are six movements that trigger BPV, and they're in three pairs. There's turning over to the left or right in bed there's lying back in bed or sitting up or there's tipping your head back or tipping your head forwards. And if those trigger a a sensation that comes on like a wave and goes away within a minute or so, that's BPPV.
1: That's really useful. I got a little bit caught out thinking, oh, this sounded like BPPV. And then she said about lying, looking up. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that one. So that's really useful. Thank you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It still fits the pattern. So the second group are the people whose um, true rotational vertigo lasts between 20 minutes and 24 hours. And they will tell you about these episodes, which make them feel very poorly. Um, They're often nauseous or they vomit during the episode. And it's associated with tinnitus or fullness in one ear and often a fluctuating hearing loss. And that's a bond or diagnosis of Meniere's disease. So many years disease is a clinical diagnosis. We think it's due to raised pressure in the ear structures. And it has a really, really classical presentation, which patients will describe to you really clearly, um, given the chance.
3: Yeah. And again, you know, it's that thing of recognizing that they may have had these episodes before, but they just didn't know what they were, and that they come out of the blue randomly with no real trigger. So it's completely spontaneous. And that Timing is, is yeah, perfect. So it's not super short like BPPV, and it's not longer like vestibular neuritis, which we can talk about in a second. And there's always some, well, there's not always, but there's often, they can tell it's coming from one of their ears because it feels different. It sounds different. Hmm.
1: So then moving on, can you tell us about vestibular neuritis?
2: Yeah. So the patient who comes to you and says, I felt really, really dizzy. It lasted for four, five, six days. I couldn't get out of bed. And then the dizziness resolved, but I've not been right since. Now, it might be a sort of uh, a couple of weeks lag when you guys see them. By the time we see them, it's often been a 12 to 18 month lag and they're just not right. That's really, really classic for vestibular neuritis, which is essentially an inflammation of the nerve of balance, often associated with a viral illness. Although patients often say, yeah. oh, I don't think I've had a cold. Don't think I've had a viral illness. Um, it's still a really classic clinical picture. Um, And we can confirm that they've had a vestibular loss. So essentially, once one in ear has had a viral attack, a vestibular insult, it is never the same again. And patients will tell you this. They say, I've not been the same since. And that's because they've got a vestibular loss in one ear. And in the clinic, um, we usually know what it is by the time they've used those words to tell us. But um, we also do a head impulse test. Or in fact, David does an advanced version of that, which is a video head impulse test to, to record their vestibular loss. And these patients aren't going to recover their vestibular loss, but they can improve their functional balance and their confidence and their strength through vestibular rehabilitation, physiotherapy.
3: So there, there is really no decent treatment for uh, vestibular neuritis. You know, I think the BMJ says possibly give them some antiemetics for a few days, but please do not put them on vestibular suppressants because (laughs) if they do, then they won't compensate and we want them to compensate, which is what Emma was talking about. And the best best way for them to compensate is to, to be active and ideally to do vestibular exercises, which can be, you know, they can they can be guided through that by uh, audiologists, physiotherapists. There's quite a few people out there that will do it. And, you know, in your local audiology centre, there may be someone who does vestibular rehab. The, the thing I would add to that as well is um, there's sometimes confusion between labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis. And the difference is labyrinthitis comes with a hearing loss. And it often resolves, but not always, whereas vestibular neuritis is just an inflammation of the vestibular portion of the nerve.
1: Amazing. So is that, don't use histine and, and medications like that because then they won't be able to recover there?
2: So, so prochlorperazine or Stematil is the one that we don't like our patients having long term because that really dampens things down. So it makes the acute vestibular episodes better, but if they take it in the long term, it make them feel terrible and yeah. it can stop them rehabilitating
3: yeah and it, sorry to interrupt but it can also have extra side effects as well so we you know i see patients that that saw a gp or or someone in an emergency department years ago and they've been on three proper a day for years and they've got a tremor so you know could be careful about that really
2: histine is different. histine doesn't really dampen down the vestibular system. In fact, we don't really know how histine works. And the evidence out there is that, yeah, perhaps it works a bit, um, but it's worth trying because it doesn't really have much in the way of side effects. So histine or senarazine are medications that we do absolutely try before we um, go on to trialing other therapies, especially for our patients with Meniere's disease.
3: So is the motion sickness pill that you can buy over the counter as well. And that has been shown to have a, a suppressant effect. So if they're going to do re- rehab, we'd rather they weren't on that usually. Um I suppose the, uh, you mentioned those three big ones, BPPV, many and and neuritis, and they really are three of the big ones. But the other one I would say that is much more common than people realize is vestibular migraine. And it's, uh, it's, very the it's it's quite it can be quite hard to differentiate between that and many disease because they both present in episodes that come out of the blue. So the four categories I was talking about earlier the episodic spontaneous category that would be vestibular migraine versus many airs and it by the look of the literature and my my experience vestibular migraine is more common than many it won't have the or the um, otological symptoms, Uh, they will maybe have a history of headache or a family history of migraine. There may be other things like photophobia and phonophobia during the episodes.
2: I think now that we know that vestibular migraine is a thing, we're seeing it more and more. And these might be patients who previously would have said, well, your hearing's normal, there's not really much wrong with you. Um, We now know that it, it probably is a variant of migraine, and therefore we've got treatment options for it patients are very glad as well often by the time they reach us they've been without a diagnosis with mm-hmm. horrible symptoms for a long time and um, one of the things that i um, sort of tell our students about is that we often don't cure someone's dizziness because it's really really hard to cure dizziness but by listening to them and you know doing what we can they're usually very very grateful
3: yeah <laughs> yeah um And and I suppose the other thing about vestibular migraine that's worth mentioning is that uh, from my experience, and also I I think that people have published on this, that it does respond as well as a classical migraine to prophylaxis. And that can be managed in primary care. And there's, you know, the headache, the specialist headache clinics that generally don't tend to want to see those people until they've tried everything and nothing's worked. Um, but that's the kind of thing where we can happily send them back to primary care and most people, most people, f- when they find the drug that works for them, you know, can get a lot of benefit f- from that.
0: Yeah, that's fab, but I think it's just putting that on people's radar because I don't think it would always kind of be in the, like for us even writing these, it wasn't in our top hitters of thinking about it. So it's good to get that message out actually because it's something that can be easily solved in primary care um, without people having to wait for ages to try and get a diagnosis the next thing we just wanted to ask about was examination um in these patients and you have talked about a couple of specific tests um that can be done um but just generally what do you find helpful in terms of differentiating the causes of um of vertigo and then maybe give us a bit more of explanation of the specialist stuff if that's okay
3: yeah um uh, I suppose the two the two really handy clinical tests for, that I feel like everyone should know are the dix hall pike and the head impulse test. There are loads of fancy other vestibular tests, and they require lots of technology and equipment. But you know that you don't need those outside of a specialist centre. A head impulse test can tell you a lot about whether it's peripheral or, or central, and and dix pike will tell you whether there's BPPV. So if you can get good at those two things, they're really really handy.
0: And if people do want to get better at those things. Have you got any pointers about where we can send them any good resources
3: there's a good there's a couple of good bmj uh, videos on dix hall pike and on epley um that are really clear and then there's tons of videos on the head impulse on on youtube as well
1: i get confused with the head impulse test so can you talk us through a little bit so when it's positive what does that mean and when it's negative what does that mean
2: Yeah, so this is difficult to explain uh, without sort of images or videos. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sound only. Using only words. um, Describe the head impulse test. (laughs) I'll let David answer this because he's really good at this. It's what he does day in, day out. (laughs)
3: Um, Okay, so... You've got, so say if you're doing a head impulse test, generally you're testing the the horizontal semicircular canals and the the connection between them and the eyes. It's a really simple, very quick reflex. It's the quickest reflex in the body, three-neuron arc, out of the ears, down the brainstem, back out to the eyes. And um, when you turn your head either way, if you want to keep looking at a spot in front of you, your eyes will have to move in exactly the opposite direction with exactly the same speed in order to stay on that same point. And people with working vestibular ocular reflexes can do this easily. So you you hold their head, you ask them to look at the bridge of their nose and you move their head quickly from side to side with a bit of a pause in between each movement. And it needs to be a quick, sharp movement with a sudden stop. And you're looking at what their eyes do and their eyes should sort of eerily remain fixed on yours. Even though they've turned, rotated within their head, their eyes are still fixed on on the bridge of your nose because that's because both of their horizontal semicircular canals are outputting the right signal and that VOR is working on both sides. If you've got one side that doesn't work, or in fact, even if, you know, you can have two sides that don't work, but if you if you push the head towards a side that doesn't work, the eyes will not get the signal quickly enough from that peripheral vestibular system. And they will stay in the center, in the middle of the orbit and they will move with the head and go off your nose. And then they will have to circade back. They'll, their eyes will zip back onto your nose. So you will see that especially when they're, you know, when they just become dizzy, they're acute, you know, they've got vestibular neuritis or it's a new, it's a new loss. Before they've compensated, you will see a very big old, what's called a catch-up saccade. So you push their head to the side that's weak, their eyes go away from your nose, and then they zip back onto your nose. And if you find that you, every time you do that repeatedly, maybe three or more times, every time it happens, they always zip back onto your nose then you've got you're looking at a peripheral vestibular loss on that side, and that's a positive head impulse to to that side you've got to be a bit careful because people, especially older people, will just have fixation instability and they will just zip their eyes around a little bit, especially if they're nervous or they're anxious or looking so directly at you. That's why you need to do it multiple times to make sure it's repeatable. Does that make sense
1: that is absolutely brilliant, thank you so much <laughs>
0: um. Um, and just thinking about uh, who needs to see you guys um, in, in ENT, um, who would you like to see being referred from primary care to yourselves?
2: Yeah. So earlier on, we talked about our patients with Meniere's disease and how we would maybe trial some conservative management or we might trial them on some medication. And if those things don't work, they probably need to come and see us because, you know, a lot of these are young people in their 30s 40s 50s with lives and jobs and having disabling vertigo on a regular basis is not acceptable and the next step after medication used to be very destructive major surgery but we now have injections intratympanic injections which work absolutely brilliantly and i deliver a lot of these so patients whose many years disease hasn't settled down with conservative measures or medication i will off- absolutely offer them um, a course of injections the first um type that we try is an intratympanic dexamethasone injection which essentially we inject it through the eardrum with a bit of local anesthetic it gets absorbed into the inner ear through the round window of the cochlea and it just reduces the pressure it just settles everything down and it sounds a bit like you know crazy magic but um, about 90% of patients absolutely love these injections and get relief from their symptoms for 6 months a year two years some of them I never see again um, and about 10% of people don't benefit from the dexamethasone injections, and that's probably because they've got some soft tissue or bone overlying the round window, so that the dexamethasone can't get to it. And I can't really tell you how good the injection therapy is. Uh, patients really, really benefit from it. And there are and there are further steps. So the treatment for MNE-S disease is very much stepwise. And I think if they haven't benefited from medication, they probably do need to come to a specialist clinic to consider further management options.
3: Yeah. Um i probably add to that. So obviously, you know, more complex uh, dizziness that doesn't easily fit into the categories we were talking about earlier, they should certainly come to an ENT balance clinic. I would add to that that, you know, if you uh, have got a really barn door history of what sounds like vestibular neuritis and when you see the, if you manage to see them early on and you do get a positive head impulse test or you see their eyes rolling around and you're fairly convinced, but they're still a bit wishy-washy, their balance is still a bit off and when they move quickly they go a bit dizzy and you know, they just don't feel like what they were, then they need to really do some vestibular rehab. And there are, you know, in your local area, it's worth working figuring out which physiotherapists and which audiologists do that. And, you know, then hopefully you can send directly to them. And a similar kind of thing for BPPV, if you, you don't feel confident treating them or maybe you've tried treating them and not getting anywhere, then again, that's something that probably a physio and audiologist can help with rather than, you know, Going into a, a longer, probably a longer wait time for ENT, but if you have those connections in your, you know, local area, you know that's kind of the thing that's worth establishing so that you can you can send people and get get them treated quickly because for both for BPPV and rehab, the earlier you get them, the better, really.
1: Yeah, well, that's really useful. Thank you. Um, and then you've talked about what um, patients might expect from attending the clinic if they've got Men- Meniere's disease. But what about for other patients? So say like we have somebody who's not recovered well after their uh, vestibular neuronitis or labyrinthitis. uh, What might they expect from the clinic?
2: Yeah, so they'd probably get to see us together. We would take a history from them. Um, David would do a video head impulse test there and then in the clinic to confirm their unilateral vestibular loss. And should that be the case, we'd let them know that we're going to arrange some vestibular rehabilitation physiotherapy for them. So we wouldn't do that the same day. Um, We might give them them some some exercises to get started on at home. Um, But essentially, we'd usually, um, if they've made it as far as us, it means they haven't compensated. So they'd really benefit from a face-to-face session to start their rehab. And we'd organise that for them um, in the near future.
3: Yeah.
2: If we can pinch some of those,
1: if you've got any online exercise sheets and things that we can pinch some of your resources.
3: Yeah, well, I would point everyone towards uh, Lucy Yardley's. Um, it's called, oh, what's it called? Retraining Your Balance or something like that. It's a small, it's about a 13-page booklet. You can, It's open source. You can print it off. It's really good. It's well-evidence-based. And there's lots of, dif- there's quite. There's not too many exercises. There's a good amount of exercises in there for them to get started on. And you can, they can, you know, there's instructions on how to kind of self-pace. Um, so if you, you know, especially if you're out, not anywhere near a a big centre that does rehab, that Lucy Yardley's book is really good.
1: That's really good, thank you. Um, So um, we thought we'd give you a bit of a run for your money and I was just thinking when we were writing these questions about all the patients that feel like they're not fitting into boxes, although actually... I think now they are fitting into more boxes. <laughs> um, but say like we, we've got a kind of hypothetical case to throw at you, if you don't mind, just to see what your initial thoughts are. Um, we've picked somebody called Sandra. She's 60 years old and she's come into us feeling really woozy and uh, funny after having had COVID. So she had COVID a few weeks ago, had a bit snotty, coughing, bit of a headache and then sort of gradually over a couple of days started feeling dizzy a bit like she was drunk but without the fun part and she's off balance so she comes in holding a few things her hearing is fine her, there's no tinnitus she's had no cranial nerve symptoms no visual symptoms she's otherwise okay she's keeping food down she's not vomiting um, but she just does not feel right and she's quite off balance when she is
2: walking around So can we get your initial thoughts on that case? I mean, um, Sandra sounds like quite a few of the patients we see. She's Mm. about the right age. Um, She's got all the right symptoms. And we've seen a lot of dizziness following COVID infection both sort of non-specific and specific. Now, Sandra's case does sound a bit to me like a case of viral uh, vestibular neuronitis. So we would certainly take a history from her, find out when it first came on, how she felt at that time, and how she'd been doing since. We'd find out a bit more about her general health. And I'd have a look in her ears. We always need to look in ears to see if there's any ear pathology that's catching us out. And then I'd hand over to David, who would.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um- absolutely all that stuff and then if it wasn't you know obvious in 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 our clinic with something as simple and as quick as a video head impulse test there is you know we then can see them in a in a much more in-depth clinic where we get 90 minutes with them and then we've got a whole room full of tests to try with them to try and pin down you know because within the peripheral vestibular system there's five end organs and there's the connections up into the brainstem, and we can more or less test most of that and with these post-COVID dizziness patients, you know some of them are, like Emma says, quite vague, and they don't have peripheral vestibular, or they don't have any concrete findings. And some of them do genuinely, genuinely do. We have seen some objective audiovestibular loss, and it may be, have viral causes. We, 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 I think, the jury's a little bit out. The literature is a bit vague still at this point, um, but definitely some of them are, are having genuine audiovestibular loss. And some of them are having um, what has been what's been called now for quite a while, um, triple PD. Um, So this is uh, the term that used to be it used to be called chronic subjective dizziness. And these days it's called persistent postural perceptual dizziness. And it tends to be a chronic dizziness that is triggered by an initial event. And the initial event is usually vestibular, but not always. It's something that puts you off balance and makes you dizzy, but you have an extreme, you have an anxious response to. So it tends to be patients that either have a pre-existing history of anxiety or, or have a very, uh, you know, an acute uh, anxious response to the initial event. And then it puts certain circuits in the brain on high alert for good. There's sort of maladaptive. Ad- process i never get that word right uh, that kind of goes on and keeps everything in in a very like high risk postural control uh, mode and there tends to be this kind of general fee- feeling of movement chronic dizziness fuzziness in the head. that goes away when they lie down they're not upright and, and that's the postural part and uh, they can often find that it, it's worsened in with visual complexity. If they're in visually busy environments, it's worse with lots of movement, and it's there all the time. And we, I've certainly seen a bit of that from COVID. And part of that is because you know, having lived through this pandemic, having COVID nineteen is quite an anxiety provoking thing to have because you sort of don't know what you're going to end up with. You hear all, you hear about all sorts of different things. So there, people are having anxious responses too having COVID and then possibly they're having viral uh, post-viral problems or they're, they're having inflammation of the inner ear and, and that's leading to triple PD. And that needs a kind of multidisciplinary approach. The literature points you towards vestibular rehab is one thing, cognitive behavioral therapy is a the second, arm, um, and then in some cases SSRIs can help. But that's worth reading up on if you do get patients like that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting though actually it's making a lot of sense yeah i'm thinking i can remember some patients that that would
2: apply to but you will not think of it until you've sort of learned about it so hopefully now that you know you know about it when the next comes along you're like oh this sounds a bit like triple pd
1: yeah absolutely very interesting so our next question is about resources and i'm really happy that we've Got some really good ones there. The retaining your balance resource sounds brilliant. Um and then the things that you mentioned earlier on, Dave, about the the deadly, the five deadly Ds. <laughs> Any other resources that you think are would be quite useful for people if they want to know more about this topic?
3: Um there is an organisation called Vida V E D A. Now, I cannot. I I know the V is vestibular and DA are disorders association, but I can't for the life of me remember what E is. It's an American thing, and they have tons of resources uh, for clinicians and patients. Like the patient information is pretty good and like sort of downloadable PDFs of various different things. The Many Air Society is quite helpful, Uh, their website is quite good.
2: Yeah, I was going to mention the Many Air Society because a lot of patients with disabling dizziness go online and join patient groups and whip themselves up into a frenzy because there's a lot of rubbish information out there, but there's also some really fantastic information out there. And I think if we direct our patients towards resources like the Many Air Society, where we know the information is good, uh, they're more likely to have a a better journey.
3: Yeah, I'd probably add to that as well. Migraine Trust, they're a uh, UK-based organisation. They're very good. They've got lots of info on there. Yeah,
1: brilliant. These are really useful resources. Yeah, that's
0: good stuff there. Um, so yeah, we always end our episodes by asking our guests what they want um, listeners to remember from the episode, what their top take-home points are. Um, so if you've got anything that you um, you want people to remember.
2: I mean, I would come back to what I mentioned earlier, with, which is that it's really all about the history. Yeah. And if you ask a few key questions, you probably will be able to pin down what's going on with your patient. And the second thing, I guess, is if you're not sure um, what's going on, or if you've tried things that haven't worked, then absolutely, we would love to meet those patients.
3: Yeah, I'd I'd agree. Um, It's all about the history. You know, essentially, what does it feel like? How long does it last? And does anything make it happen? Really, really important to ask that straight away. Yeah, the other thing would be just to repeat that if in primary care, you can get confident feel confident doing a head impulse and a dicks hall pike that will really see you you know see you well
1: that's incredible yeah and what how many minutes are we on and you've managed to cover that much it's unbelievable thank you so so much both of
2: you no problem no problem thank you for having us we're very, very grateful to get the opportunity to share some yeah. some of our experience mm. So, uh,
0: yes, Sarah, wasn't that just absolutely fabulous? I am so happy with that chat. Um, We've wanted this for so long and it was perfect. Um, What did you take away?
1: Yeah, as soon as we uh, came off the call, I think I just said, I can't believe that I've gotten this far in my... (laughs) training and not have that conversation because it's just clarified so much yes. um i just feels like i just missed that part of of medicine and i have you know i've, I've tried i've done lots and uh, i'm not horrific at vertigo it's just that there's just so much to know yeah. um and yeah they just clarified so, so so much i really enjoyed just thinking about the timing the triggers Uh, episodic, -episodic, non-episodic and then triggered or spontaneous I just thought that was a really good sorting hat really really useful Um, and then oh I love a really just that simple point that just clarified something that I didn't work out for ages which is the difference between vestibular neuronitis and labyrinthitis is that that labyrinthitis has got hearing involvement yeah oh it's that simple wow okay
0: yeah Yeah." I know um and I was just uh, like yeah it was just such the basics but it just everything made sense things like um i know that people always talk about um balance being ears and vision and proprioception but i like that um she added in and a healthy brain and connections because that kind of yeah ties it all together a bit better for me um in terms of thinking about wider causes of dizziness and then just that simple definition of vertigo that it's an illusion of movement
1: i'm like oh yeah that's just quite simple but yeah, it's effective isn't it <laughs> yeah and I, honestly it felt like um, complete brain when they were talking us through typical cases for peripheral vertigo even though i kind of thought i knew them really well i was like oh right you know there'd be ppv it can be when you're looking up um and then and then that the vestibular neuronitis can last much longer exactly um, and even just thinking about vestibular
0: migraine um like i said in the episode it's just not something that necessarily would come to mind but yeah, that's, and, and the triple PD as well. Um, oh, yeah. just having that on your radar, cause that, that fits quite a few patients, particularly because it can have that initial trigger. Yeah. And, and then you've got these people who keep coming back and it's not right. And yeah, you know that they would fit into that picture. Um, so yeah, that was fascinating. And then just, um, hearing about the head impulse test. Um, because I think the biggest panic that, um, I always had was missing the stroke um yeah. that was always the thing um and his explanation was really useful for that and if you can kind
1: of kneel down how to do that properly in practice i feel like it would be so helpful yeah the head impulse test is going to be a total game changer i've, I've tried it and i just kind of wasn't at all convinced by what i was doing so i think it's going to be a lot more yeah enjoyable. just turning lots of people's heads <laughs> yeah <laughs> lots <laughs> and those resources just lapping yeah, them up so many good things
0: um, and we'll link to everything because there, there are loads there that are just going to be amazing for everybody but yeah hopefully you find it as good as we did um, and that for everybody out there who asked for us to do Vertigo that it fulfilled what you wanted as well and keep getting in touch and um, we do do things that people ask us to so if you've got any bright ideas or anything that you want um, us to cover then please let us know um, and thank you to everyone who does yeah lovely till next time I'm Primary Care Knowledge Beast.
1: This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub, and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership.
0: Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public.
1: They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022 guidelines can vary by location as well as over time so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based
0: on our interviewees opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical
1: judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.